Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Basketball was probably the only sport I ever thought I was any good in. And maybe I really wasn't. But I did happen to secure a spot as a starting forward on my high school basketball team, even in ninth grade. Now, it's not like the Gators at Loretto Abbey High School in Toronto were really that good at basketball. So don't be too impressed. But it was a feat that I was really proud of. And I remember there were a couple of games in particular where I felt like I had what we call the hot hand. I just couldn't miss. I couldn't wait to get the ball because I knew that as soon as I got it, it would go through that net. It only happened a few times, but those times were magical. And then when I got to grad school and I read about the fact that the hot hand was probably all just in my head, I felt a little bit deflated. But that's also why I got super excited when Ben Cohen, he's the Wall Street Journal reporter on the NBA, wrote a book called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. We recorded this interview before the NBA canceled their season and before the virus seems to have invaded every one of our conversations. And so I hope you'll enjoy this discussion on the hot hand. Does it exist? If it does, what is it and what does it mean for us? And how might we use it to our advantage? Ben Cohen, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So reading the opening of your book brought me back to some pivotal moments of my childhood that I hadn't thought about in many, many years. Um, I used to play basketball in high school. I loved it. I'm tall. I'm Lithuanian. So basketball was kind of like a no-brainer <laughs> for me. It was you know, the only sport. It was in the blood. It was in the blood. It was the only sport that I could conceivably be any good at. And it, I, I remember two pivotal moments that uh, I think illustrate some aspects of your book that I want to really touch upon. The first was, I remember there was one time where I was in a game um, and uh, I was, it was my high school, I was on the varsity team, and the coach pulled me out after I missed two shots in a row. And I thought I was really angry and I thought that was like a really bad move because basically it punished me for taking shots. And, you know, I was just like, that's a terrible coaching decision. And then, but even worse, was the time when he pulled me out after I made three shots in a row, and I thought I had the hot hand, and he pulled me out. 
And it was devastating. <laughs> of course it was, because what happened next could have been something that you like remember for the rest of your life. Like it did for you. Yes. Well, you played varsity basketball, so you have already uh, beat me in terms of basketball ability and uh, potential, probably. But but yes, I mean, I remember my one brush with the hot hand. And you know, one of my theories writing this book is that everybody kind of remembers their experience with the hot hand, right? It's this universal phenomenon. Sometimes it's in basketball. Sometimes it's in other sports. Sometimes it's uh, in life, in your career, at work, at school. But we all know what it feels like to be in the zone. And I do. I, I was a terrible basketball player by like any objective measure, including my own opinion. I was really, really bad at basketball. Uh, but there was one game uh, when I was a sophomore in high school on the junior varsity basketball team coming off the bench because I came off the bench in every game when I scored 16 points in one quarter, which was astonishing. It was more points that I had scored, I think, in my entire career combined. I just couldn't miss. And and I, and it was like 15, 20 years ago, and I still remember so much about it. Like It has stuck with me uh, ever since then. And I didn't know that I would one day write a book uh, about that experience when it was happening, um, especially because I quit playing basketball not long afterwards. But, uh, but it, when I did decide to write this book, it kind of made me curious because I, I wonder why was it that I remembered that so much and, and why is the hot hand such a compelling factor in our memories? Like, wh why did I, why did it stick with me? Why did it stick with you for all these years later? And, and <laughs> what I really did not expect to be thinking about was whether or not there was such a thing as the hot hand, as all of these academics and brilliant scientists have studied for all these years. Yeah, I mean, it's it feels so good when you're in that and you think you're like literally on fire. And, you know, you talk about NBA Jam, this video game, which basically monetized the hot hand where, you know, in this game, it, there is this mode on fire mode where if your player gets uh, three shots in a row, uh, they become kind of un unstoppable. And that, you know, this was in, in some ways the most successful video game in the arcades uh, of its time. That's right. It was it was a game called NBA Jam that I think kind of brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds into believing that there was such a thing as the hot hand. And and I fall directly into that NBA Jam generation, as does uh, a guy who is slightly better at basketball than I am and and a couple months older and his name is Stephen Curry. And Steph Curry is I think undeniably the greatest basketball shooter ever. And he grew up playing NBA Jam in part because his father, Dell, an NBA player, was actually in NBA Jam. So when he wasted all of this time playing the game, he could actually almost pretend to be playing as himself because it would say Curry under the name, right? And, you know, Steph Curry, like almost everybody who has ever played basketball and especially played in the NBA, believes in the concept of the hot hand. And, you know, I tell the story in the book about how the night that he got the hot hand, the hottest night that he ever was, the streakiest he ever shot, was actually a game that changed his life and changed the future of the Golden State Warriors and kind of changed the fate of the entire NBA. Um, all of that, it all has to do with the hot hand. So, and, you know, I, I also have a, a memory of being in grad school and learning about the regression to the mean <laughs> and then reading a bunch of papers that suggested the hot hand is an illusion and it doesn't actually exist. So tell us about that. Uh, what, what, you know, like, and before we go into sort of the more recent data rich work that uh, you talk about in your book, let's kind of set the stage for, you know, why people for a long time, just as scientists didn't believe in the hot hand. 
Well, this all started in the 1980s when the first classic study of the hot hand was published. And uh, it was uh, written by uh, Tom Gilovich, Bob Ballone, and the great Amos Tversky. And what made this paper such a classic was its counterintuitive conclusion that there is no such thing as the hot hand. It just doesn't exist. Um, it was this very accessible, digestible, easy to understand example of seeing patterns in randomness. It was our brains playing tricks on us, and that's why they wrote the paper. But when they published that study, something kind of amazing happened. Um, it was actually so unbelievable that many people just refused to believe it because we'd all felt the hot hand and we'd seen the hot hand. We'd had those experiences in our high school basketball games when we remember what it felt like to, to make three shots in a row and sort of know that we were going to make our next shot or at least feel that way. And now there were these professors telling us that there was no such thing as the hot hand. And for an academic paper, it really caused quite a stir. Like it, 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 it spread beyond academia. It, there were NBA coaches, the great Red Auerbach, maybe the greatest NBA coach ever. Um, and, uh, this very lucky reporter had the pleasure of telling Red Auerbach that there was no such thing as the hot hand. And he just sort of sneered in disgust. And he says, so this guy, this guy being Amos Tversky, like one of the greatest minds ever, this guy makes a study like, who cares? I don't care. Like, I don't believe it. Right. And that was actually the reaction of, of most people, most professionals, most NBA players. Um, but what, you know, obviously what's changed in recent years, um, and really this is why I wrote the book sort of is that, is that there is this new evidence that has emerged, um, powered by this new data and these new ways of thinking to suggest that our intuition may have actually been right all along. And there really is such a thing as the hot hand. But but even uh, if we accept those papers, I don't think it diminishes um, sort of the beauty of that first paper. It, like it, it was so uh, admirable for what it was trying to say and how counterintuitive and contrarian um, and accessible, like using basketball to explain this bug or feature of the human mind is just kind of this delicious thing. It was so irresistible to me. And, you know, so if, if he had read that paper, my coach was right to pull me out because chances are that after making three shots in a row, my fourth shot would have been back to the mean, which would probably have been, I hope, 50%, but probably much less than that. When you read that paper in graduate school, did you call your coach and tell him that uh, that he was right? <laughs> I, I did. I did not. Uh, but in my head, I was thinking, oh, okay, so maybe it wasn't such a bad decision, and you know, my whole childhood wasn't totally ruined. Um, but I, I, so I just like in, in terms of getting into the weeds a little bit of what this paper was showing. Essentially, there it was showing exactly that 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 there is no evidence that uh, people go on streaks and then make a bunch of shots in the row that really diverge very much from their general average, but rather that when we see people make shots in a row, when we see people, you know, flip a coin and it's heads uh, five times in a row, we kind of assume that there's a pattern there and that the next flip is going to be heads, even though we know that there's still just a 50% chance that it's going to be heads, heads or tails. That's right. And it was this cognitive bias that reflects how we uh, mistake patterns and randomness, right? We see patterns where they don't exist. And in part, that's because pure randomness is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. 
Um, I mentioned Amos Tversky earlier. He had this, he died in 1996, but he had this amazing quote when he was talking about the hot hand, which he loved doing. He loved basketball and he relished in telling the story of the hot hand and how Red Auerbach, the coach of his beloved Boston Celtics, didn't believe him. And he once said, we invent causes to explain those patterns, right? Um, we think that we must be hot. There mu we must be channeling something. We must be in the zone because it doesn't make sense to us um, it doesn't make sense to us otherwise. And, and that is why it persisted for so long and why that paper, when it came out, was so powerful because it challenged something that we all were convinced was true. And this has implications, obviously, much outside basketball, although it does seem to be a phenomenon that is really beautifully illustrated by basketball. Uh, and so in your book, you talk about a lot of other instances in which uh, streaks or this, you know, this idea of a hot hand can actually have negative consequences, because it isn't based on reality. So, you know, one example that really kind of struck me uh, is when judges actually make decisions on the basis of whether or not they perceive there to be a streak. That's right. And that sort of reflects what I think of as the corollary to the hot hand, which is the gambler's fallacy. And the easiest way to understand the gambler's fallacy is kind of also through basketball. I mean, I, I am biased. I am a basketball reporter for the Wall Street Journal, but I felt like I had this excuse to write about basketball because all of these major studies of the hot hand over the years did. So in a way, it actually would have been sort of intellectually dishonest for me to not write about basketball. I had like Amos Tversky giving me permission to write about basketball. But so if you think about if you think about basketball, if you're in an arena and Stephen Curry makes three shots in a row, everybody in that arena thinks that he's going to make a fourth, right? That's the hot hand. If you walk into a casino, though, and you walk over to the roulette wheel, and it lands on red three times in a row. What research has shown is that people will actually bet on black the fourth time, not red. And so in basketball, you bet on the streak to continue. In gambling, you bet on the streak to end. And what's the difference? To me, it's one of control, right? When, when we think that a situation is in our control, when it reflects skilled performance, we think that's the hot hand uh, and we can continue that. But when we understand that it's not, when we're at the mercy of chance, when the performance is random, we think better of it. And uh, that brings us to judges. That was a long windup to get to judges and baseball umpires and these figures of authority in our lives. Uh, what one research paper recently by that was led by an economist named Toby Moskowitz found was that if you look at asylum cases, so people, uh, refugees applying to stay in the United States, right? Um, if an asylum judge has granted asylum in two or three cases in a row, he is much less likely to grant asylum to a fourth refugee, regardless of the merits of the case, right? That's like a really, to me, that was a really crushing statistic. It was, it was, it was, um, it was quite depressing because, uh, it means that, uh, the strength of their case is not simply about who they are or where they're from or what they want to do in the United States. It's simply about the when of when their case is heard, right? And, and it just sort of shows that even judges, even people who are trained to know better and to literally make judgments, right? Like this is all about judgment and decision making. And here we have this case of judges. They try to even out the streak in their own minds and they try to uh, regress to the mean in terms of their uh, judgments and their decisions. And so um, to me, that was sort of the, the human effect of the hot hand. It, it shows that there are real human consequences to this. It's not simply, is Steph Curry going to make his fourth shot? 
there are people uh, whose livelihoods and uh, and whether or not they stay in the United States, um, it really depends in a lot of ways on things like the hot hand and the gambler's fallacy. And I, th- I think the thing that also struck me, though, when thinking about the gambler's fallacy, fallacy and the hot hand, and this idea that we kind of are going to bet against the streak uh, in, in that situation And yet when we're thinking about the stock market and whether or not we should sell those stocks that are rising, um, you know, we're much less likely to sell when it's a uh, bull market than when it's a bear market uh, because of the sunk cost fallacy. So can you talk a little bit about sort of this interplay between, you know, how what, what what's different about stocks that makes us less likely to, you know, stop buying when they're kind of on a streak? And, and or is that true? Well, it's funny because clearly the sunk cost fallacy plays into this. Um, but to me, you know, I, I was the reason why all of these economists, I think, have looked at the hot hand over the last 35 years is because there are these consequences in finance, right? And to me, like the most interesting one was how do we invest our money and who do we give our money to and trust them to manage it, right? Like, can we play the stock market? Do you want to give your money to someone who claims to beat the market two or three times in a row? Uh, which in many ways is like a billion dollar question. Um, in the book, I read about a firm called Dimensional Fund Advisors, which uh, was founded by this now billionaire named David Booth. And it has been at the forefront of the passive investing revolution that has kind of swept through finance in recent years. And Booth went to the University of Chicago. He studied under the Nobel laureate Eugene Fama. And in his time there, he was bred to believe that markets were efficient, which was this kind of crazy notion at the time. It's become conventional wisdom today in part because of people like David Booth. But at the time, like making a fortune by letting the markets go to work for you was a funny idea. It wasn't how uh, banks operated. Um, now, David Booth is someone who believes that maybe you can get hot, but it's very difficult to predict who those people will be in advance. Um, in fact, I, I, I had lunch with him a couple of years ago, and when I asked him about the hot hand, he said, if you look at what the fundamental question is in investing, even after all these years of research by academics, in some senses, it really is, are there hot hands in stock picking? And his working assumption is no, like there could be, but we just don't know how to identify them before the fact, which means that we don't know how to profit from them either. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
So you suggested, though, that the hot hand, this idea that it doesn't exist, that I think a lot of us who read those papers from, you know, the 80s and 90s and uh, you know about the regression to the mean and know about the brain's tendency to find patterns in randomness, even though they're not there. Now you're saying there's new research out there that suggests that maybe it is a thing. So can you tell us about that? Yes. And and to clarify, I, I think that, that the, the thrust of those papers was right. Like even in even if you do believe the hot hand uh, does exist, I don't think it's quite like the basketball turning into a fireball the way that it's depicted in NBA Jam, right? Boom, like that, shakalaka, that doesn't right? quite exist. <laughs> exactly, right? He's not heating up, you're not on fire. Maybe you maybe I mean maybe you are, but um, but that's an exaggerated notion. Now to me, um, the reason why I wrote this book was that our thinking about the hot hand has actually changed dramatically over the last five years. And uh, it started in many ways from an unlikely source, which was a team of Harvard undergraduates four or five years ago who got access to this novel uh, database, again, through basketball, that uh, was able to isolate how difficult every shot on the basketball court was. Now, to understand this paper, you kind of have to understand that uh, when someone does have the hot hand, it warps the behavior of everybody around them, right? They believe they have the hot hand. The defense believes they have the hot hand. The coaches believe he has the hot hand. The fans believe he has a hot hand, right? Like everyone is behaving as if this person is going to shoot and probably make that next shot. So what happens? You, you take harder shots, right? You take riskier shots, and those shots are probably less likely to go in. And you're better defended, um, with this paper. right? You've got, you know, now correct, two people correct. on you. you. you get double team. You get double team sent to you, right? Maybe your coach took you out because he was suspecting that there were about to be two people on you, and <laughs> and he didn't trust you in that situation <laughs> yeah, or something. Um, maybe. <laughs> That's a good explanation. Now, but so what this paper was able to do was actually quantify the precise shot difficulty of every shot in an NBA season. And once they controlled for that shot difficulty, they showed that there actually was a very slight hot hand effect so that you were not uh, less likely or the same amount of likely to make your next shot when you felt hot. You were actually slightly more likely, um, which was interesting. I mean, this was this was based on data that simply didn't exist when Gilovich, Fallon, and Tversky were writing that famous paper in 1985. And, and not only did it not exist, they couldn't have even imagined it, right? Like the, the, the quality of data, let alone the quantity, but the quality of data available in basketball now is just beyond their wildest, nerdiest, wonkiest dreams. And it's really only become available now. So uh, when John Ezekowitz and Carolyn Stein, these two Harvard undergrads uh, in 2014, who were looking at this data for an independent study of all things in as, as college uh, juniors, when they were looking at this, it was really the first time that anyone had access to it. So that was the first uh, big attack on this thinking about the hot hand that, that appealed to me. Um, but the next one was was actually not about data uh, at all. It was simply about looking at this problem in a new way. And um, it's based on this very, very, very subtle mathematical quirk that even mathematicians, even like the brightest mathematicians had missed for 35 years. And um, it was identified by these two young economists in Europe who are actually American named Josh Miller and Adam Sanjurjo. And uh, they recently published a paper in 2018 um, that showed that uh, the way we thought about the hot hand was actually statistically biased. And, and once you correct for that error, all of the papers for all of these years had actually shown a slight hot hand effect the whole time. So to me, that was just sort of delicious because it was 
this way of looking at a new problem and coming to a new conclusion that maybe we should have seen all along. So it kind of guaranteed that this debate about the hot hand was not over yet, and I think maybe never will be. Yeah, it kind of struck me as like the opposite of the reproducibility crisis in science. Like here, instead of saying, oh, you know, all those findings that were, you know, had significant p-values, in fact, uh, were just a, a random chance, here are all those findings that showed no effect uh, were in fact missing, making a, a, a false, you know, false negative. Is that the right thing? I'm, yeah. Making an error, uh, essentially, by, by missing this subtle piece. And it's, it's certainly uh, a cousin of the replication crisis, I think. It's, it's in some way connected on the family tree. Um, but, and and, and uh, it's funny because um, I talked to a bunch of statisticians and mathematicians about this bias because the first time I wrote about it uh, was actually in the Wall Street Journal in 2015, which was three years before the paper was published in Econometrica. But, you know, it was uploaded to SSRN and it was making the rounds um, among psychologists and economists and statisticians. And, and really bright mathematical and quantitative minds had signed off on the math for it. They essentially were like the peer review before the formal peer review. And, you know, I was struggling to kind of understand the math as most people were. And what I found was that it was this, what they found was so subtle uh, that, that even these people were like struggling to wrap their minds around it. They said the math was correct. It was accurate. It was definitely right. Um, but, but the way that uh, they struggled to comprehend it kind of showed why everyone missed it for so long. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I do think, um, it, it kind of set a new stage for how we think about the hot hand going forward. And we have this body of research for the last 35 years into this phenomenon. And it's unclear, like, what we do with that now and, uh, and how we act on that information going forward. Okay, so let's assume that it's a, a small but significant effect. Uh, and now let's talk a little bit about what might be underlying it. And, you know, the thing that I think, struck me, or at least how I felt when I felt like I have the hot hand or what I do in other aspects of my life, is that it allows me the confidence to take risks that I normally otherwise wouldn't. And that when those risks pay off, I sort of make a leap in, you know, creative thinking or in athleticism or, or what what have you is that what do you think about sort of the the cause of it? Uh, so I, I do think that there is some confidence involved, right? Um, which which allows us to take those risks, um, and certainly circumstance and environment and conditions play into this. So if you are in an environment that allows for the hot hand, then for sure, like I think that there is such a thing as a hot hand, and you can take advantage. But to me, one of the most interesting things um, about this entire phenomenon is that there's been some some very 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 recent scientific research um, that shows that a lot of our best work actually comes in bunches. Our creative hits are clustered. So there was one paper um, that was published, I think two years ago, that looked at the careers of movie directors, scientists, and artists. And they tried to put some objective measures to these very subjective fields. So for movie directors, it was IMDb ratings. For scientists, it was Google Scholar citations. For artists, it was auction prices. So, so you know, these are qualitative industries and they tried to make them a little bit more quantitative. And what this paper found was that if you look at movie directors, the great majority of them, about 90%, if you look at what their best work was, what their highest rated IMDb film was, the chances were that their second best and their third best movies 
come either right before or right afterwards. They're bunched. This is how creativity works. It's clustered. Um, and that to me was really interesting because it showed that you can sort of take advantage of this hot hand and elevate to another plane and it might just change your entire career. So in the book, I tell the story about the making of The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride is this movie that I'd grown up watching. It's this, you know, beloved cult classic. Everybody just has this adoration for The Princess Bride. But what I didn't know until writing this book was that it almost didn't get made and it it probably shouldn't have been made. Many people had tried to make it before Rob Reiner. Robert Redford had tried to make it. Norman Jewison had tried to make it. Francois Truffaut had tried to make it. Like William Goldman, who who wrote uh, the novel and the screenplay, um, said that you know studio heads would get fired as soon as they committed to making the the Princess Bride. It was like this mystery haunted by a riddle and a curse. It was like no one in their right minds would touch. The Princess Bride. And yet, Rob Reiner did. And part of the reason he did was he was coming off this run where he made a movie called This Is Spinal Tap, the first film that he directed. Then he made The Sure Thing. Then he made Stand By Me. And these were critically successful. Some of them were commercially successful, but it earned him the capital to kind of make anything that he wanted. He, he had this history of these movies that were sort of delightful contradictions. There was this one Toronto Sun reporter at the time who said that he was a success not because he made movies that everybody expected to be a hit, but because he made movies that nobody expected to be a hit. And so coming off of this run, right in the middle of it, he had this amazing conversation with a studio executive that he talks about. The studio executive said, we really want to be in business with you, right? Like essentially because you seem like you have the hot hand. So tell us what movie you want to make next and we'll help you make it. And he says, you don't want to make the movie that I want to make. And she said, no, seriously, tell me, make, tell us the movie and, and we'll make it together. And he said, no, really, I'm telling you, like, you're not going to want to make the movie I want to make. And finally, she put an end to this Abbott and Costello routine they were doing and said, you know, just, just tell me, just name the movie. And he says, okay, the movie is The Princess Bride. And she says, anything but The Princess Bride. <laughs> and it turns out he finally was able to make The Princess Bride. And the only reason he was allowed to make it, the only reason he was able to, to round up the money um, and sort of gave himself permission to make it was because he was on this run uh, of hot movies. He he was making hits and uh, and everyone seemed to know that. Now, I've asked Rob Reiner about this and he says to this day that like it, it was a nightmare getting The Princess Bride made. He, he like sort of disavows this theory. But to me, the fact that in his mind it was still so hard to get made actually kind of proves the point, right? The only reason it did get made was because he had the hot hand. And I think we're all luckier for it because there have been few movies in the last 35, 40 years that have been more beloved than The Princess Bride. Yeah, I mean, people still quote it, uh, you know, decades later. But I also, you know, as someone who's worked in the performing arts world, who's also worked as a scientist, there's something that rubs me the wrong way a little bit in this notion that, uh, you know, people just when they're on a streak, when they're hot, uh, that's when a lot of things happen. And then when you go off to try to really do the hard work of your next big creative leap and you get cold, all of a sudden it becomes a lot harder to get the next job. And, you know, in fact, like who's hot in Hollywood? It's like, well, what was, you know, what was your, what was the last thing you do, you did? Not like, what did you do that was right. great what 10 have years you done ago? For me right. Lately? And so, you know, I, I, I it comes back to this idea of like, how do we even figure out whether that's something that's real, or if it's uh, a, a, just a factor of the circumstances. Like if you've had three successes in a row, you're more likely to get the studio to give you money to do the next big thing. So it's a lot easier for you to, you know, have a success than if you're, you know, trying to raise money for a project that might be super creative, but is a lot harder to fund. 
this may be a disappointing answer, but the, the, the subtitle of the book is The Mystery and Science of Streaks. And to me, that is kind of the mystery of it, right? It's less scientific. Now, to me, that's the fun of it also, right? Is figuring out when it does exist and when you can take advantage. I mean, one of the things that Steph Curry said to me when we talked about the hot hand was once it happens, you have to embrace it. Now, he doesn't know when it's going to happen. He doesn't know why it's going to happen. He doesn't know where, but once it does happen, you have to embrace it. Uh, so embrace it and try not to get burned by it is my best advice here. So there's also something that I think is an interesting phenomenon getting back to basketball as we near the end of the interview. Um, when, you know, I, I love one of the favorite things I loved doing in high school, this is how cool I was, uh, was spending Sunday afternoon with like a bowl of sour cream and onion chips and watching the doubleheader. <laughs> Like, this is why I had no friends. Uh, and, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time watching it. There was, there, you know, there's a, a lot of games that sort of, went, and it was exciting and all of this kind of thing. But it was also a, a, an example to me of how superstitious basketball players were at that time. You know, one great example is um, where they wore these necklaces, you know, made of magnets, which was supposed to uh, help them play. Yet, as you describe it now, you, you talk about a... Um, a high school team, I think, in Minnesota, Pine City, if I'm remembering that correctly, where, you know, they really spent a lot of time thinking about the statistics, and that now the players in high school approach the game very differently. Uh, and they look for, you know, like, they only take the shots that are most likely to either go in. So these are the layups, the shots right next to the basket, or to earn you three points. So behind the three point line, and everything in between is like the taboo space, like you don't take a shot, because it's just not worth the risk. Which is, you know, so I, I wondered if you could speak to this, this change in basketball in particular, but maybe in sports in general, where we're going more towards a quantified data driven approach to coaching and playing, um, has that lessened the superstition? And was the superstition, at least in part, driving this notion of the hot hand? Like, what is the interplay between that and this intuition that you're hot, and therefore you just need to keep going and believe in yourself? So the Pine City Dragons are this basketball team in the middle of basically nowhere, Minnesota. It's like halfway between Minneapolis and Duluth. It's this small town that's known for uh, performing arts and music in so much as it's known any in so much as it's known for anything at all. But over the last few years, they've actually become one of the most fearsome teams in the state of Minnesota because they have completely rethought the way they play basketball. They have become this basketball team that never takes a bad shot. And so they have this amazing ability to put a number to almost everything that happens in their program. So the location of the shot, for sure, and the number of shots they take every day in practice, of course, but they also have hired like students to be managers on the team and jot down how much the players are talking to each other in practice. So they want, they, they are part of this like money ball generation that has come of age since that seminal Michael Lewis book and understands the importance of data in sports and using data to drive decisions. Um, and to me, you know, it, it, it's really interesting because, um, it kind of spoke to how much the game has changed in recent years, even since the time that I was in high school, that, that, that magical day when I had the hot hand for myself, they're, they're playing this game that is almost unrecognizable. Like the, it, 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 it kind of looks weird when you watch them play basketball and yet it's undeniably successful. Um, however, I will say, um, for those of us who enjoy superstitions in sports and remember wearing those necklaces and eating 
those buckets of sour cream and onion chips watching baseball games. I, I walked into Pine City. Uh, I walked into their school a couple of years ago before a game, and I was watching them watch film of the upcoming opponent. And these kids were scarfing down like cheese curds and chicken wings and Oreos and just like the worst junk food you can imagine right before a game. So I do think that there is still something to superstition and the power of a placebo effect, especially if you think that that confidence is going to lead to a hot hand. Maybe just uh, we have a, a, a healthier respect for uh, the power of math and numbers and analytics and data and using uh, quantitative methods to drive our decisions as much as, uh, you know, those chicken sandwiches that we tend to eat before big games. So I want to remind our listeners that Ben Cohen's book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks is now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to end with one more, I guess, observation that you talk about in your book that surprised me. Uh, and, you know, insofar as it has nothing to do with sports, or even, in my opinion, streaks, uh, but yet it's Spotify and uh, has to do with music, which was one of my passions. So, so tell us about how Spotify made its way into your book. So the, the example of Spotify, uh, I think, is really fascinating because it shows how we kind of systematically misread randomness and we see patterns where they don't exist, which bringing this all back to that uh, original classic 1985 paper, that was the point of it, right? We misread uh, patterns. We misread randomness. We see patterns where they don't exist. So Spotify had this problem, which was that people kept telling them that when they randomized music on their playlist, it wasn't actually random. Like the shuffle function on Spotify wasn't broken. It wasn't shuffling their music. And that is because if you are to uh, randomize a sequence, there are times when you might hear the same song twice in a row, right? You might hear the same artist twice in a row. And we don't want that when we make a playlist, right? We want them actually evenly dispersed over the course of the playlist. So what Spotify had to do um, is actually something that Apple had to do a few years earlier. They had to make their product less random to feel more random. Now, Steve Jobs sort of talks about this uh, during a, a keynote speech that he gave around the birth of the iPod shuffle. And he kind of laughed at the absurdity of it all because he understood um, that our brains work in very strange ways. And what Apple had to do was actually reflect the way our minds work and not the way that pure randomness works. And to me, that it sort of spoke beautifully of this uh, phenomenon that underlies this other phenomenon, which is that we're not very good at understanding randomness. And we see patterns where they don't exist, which is why we always believe in the hot hand, or at least one of the reasons why we always believe in the hot hand. And so um, it was sort of this lesson uh, that I thought uh, so neatly illustrated that the, the larger point in this battle over uh, the hot hand and how we understand it. Yeah. So I mean, I remember uh, putting together a whole bunch of uh, neuroimaging studies where we had to use this kind of randomness without replacement, because you don't want two trials in a row that are the same. Uh, and I guess that's the same when it comes to our music. What did you find? Well, it was just a, we just had to use a kind of because we didn't want the we, we wanted them to go cycle through a whole bunch of different trials. And we didn't want two trials to, to sort of happen. And so it, it was it, I mean, that was just a way of presenting stimuli The the work itself was about memory it had nothing to do with uh, intuition and randomness. Uh, but I just vividly remember like having to program that into the algorithm because, of course, it was so common for when when you randomize a variable, that there are multiple 
you know, trials that happen that are the same. And of course, the the one kind of benefit or added benefit of of seeing patterns where there aren't any is one of the reasons why we enjoy music to begin with. Uh, we find patterns in it and we build patterns and, and they become meaningful to us. And that's at the core of music. Oh, that's so interesting. I wish I wish I would have thought about that before I wrote a book. About oh, well, it. that's book number two. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> Streaks in, in how to compose the best piece of music. Ben Cohen, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So that's it for another episode. Stay safe and well. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And in case you're finding yourselves with a little bit more time on your hands, check out our back catalog. We have hundreds of episodes for you to choose from. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. We'd also love a review. Wherever you get your podcasts, please give us a review. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. See you soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.